Let's look at the whole chapter this morning. Last week, I, I looked at the concept of, of what it, even the silence meant and, and all the ramifications of that. But now we're going to actually go through every word of this whole chapter real quickly. And as we do so, I want you to see the doctrines. Now, the word doctrine in English uh, comes from a Greek word, and the Greek word is didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, didache, which means the teachings. So whenever you've heard of doctrines classes, all doctrine means is teachings. You can have doctrines on anything. You can have doctrines on fishing. But doctrines of God are the teachings that the Word of God clearly presents. So what we're going to just pull out, and there's a lot of things you get from Revelation 8, but we're going to just look at the doctrines the truths, the teachings that God presents in these verses. And by the way, uh, there are seven of them, and I'll just give you a quick where we're going. Uh, don't, you know, some of you are going to, uh, you know, have uh, a little stroke trying to write all this down. Don't. Uh, you'll see it all again bigger. But the doctrine of inspiration is covered. You know what the doctrine of inspiration is? That God spoke this book. It's called the Word of God, and Christ is the incarnate Word, and this is the revelation of God through His Word. This is the truth. This book, the, the 66 books of the Bible, are the Word of God. That's the doctrine of inspiration. And God, in inspiration, designed revelation to connect the rest of the Bible. It's amazing. Genesis is connected and beautifully uh, showing a, a, a complete completion of Genesis' ideas in Revelation. There's this connection. All of the teaching about the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices all find their beautiful culmination and fulfillment in Revelation. All of the beginning call through Abraham of Israel finds its culmination in Revelation. All of the, the looking forward to the gospel and the cross finds its completion what happens with this glorious gospel in Revelation? It's just wonderful. Secondly, the doctrine of prayer. God designed prayer is our vital connection to him. We'll see that at the end of verse 1 all the way through 4. The doctrine of sovereignty. You know, this is a big one. How God connects our prayers to his plan. Did you know, and I'll just tell you what we're going to study in a little series on prayer, but I'll just give you a snippet of it. There are some things that God has ordained to only happen through prayer. I mean, he could just do it. But he says, I want my people to be prompted by my spirit so that I can answer, be glorified, and to do that. And, and so we're going to talk about and see this morning, but in the future, talk about the doctrine of sovereignty and prayer. Number four, uh, the doctrine is presented. Now we're getting to these trumpets that are really exciting. The doctrine that God is the only giver and sustainer of life is in verse 7. And it's very interesting how the Lord tells a whole bunch of unbelievers that by a very powerful means. And then secondly, in verses 8 and 9, the doctrine that God alone holds the breath of life in his hands. In fact, we'll see in a moment, Daniel 5.23, when Daniel was standing in front of, uh, you know, King Belteshazzar and the handwriting on the wall, remember that whole scene of this hand detached from a body poking in and writing on the wall in this huge banquet hall, as the king is, is it says his knees are smiting or smoting, I don't know, they're hitting each other. He was just having a panic attack. And as he was trying to figure that out, Daniel walks up to him and looks this ashen-faced potentate in the face and says, the God that holds your life's breath in his hand wants you to glorify him. Well, that same God who holds all of our life's breath in his hand cuts the oxygen level so everybody's having trouble breathing because he 
not only burns up a third of everything so the whole air is full of smoke, but he reduces the oxygen production by all the plankton in the sea and all the plants. A third of all plants die and a third of all plankton, sea creatures die. That's oxygeniz oxygenization, or however you say, you know, the little thing they put on your finger, the red one, to see how much oxygen's in your blood. Boy, if everybody had one of those on, and, and people are having trouble breathing. God says, you guys don't care about me? I'm the one that holds your life's breath in my hand. Why don't you repent? I mean, it's very dramatic the way the Lord handles evangelism in the tribulation. Uh, next, number six on your list there, God exclusively controls the water of life, 10 and 11, and the source of uh, the light of life. Okay, let's look at these. Verse 1. Of chapter 8. And you can just, because we're going to be talking about these for 45 minutes, you don't have to stand while I read. I'll just read. Verse 1 starts, when he opened the seventh seal. Now this is the doctrine of inspiration. And what I want to explain to you is just a little bit, and, and uh, I read this week on the, on the airplanes, thanks to the PDF format, I pulled out Revelation 8 out of all of my books, and I got this, I mean, just, just the little treatment of this chapter, and, and I got a 96-page document that weighed nothing, that I could just sit there and highlight and everything on the screen, and it was fascinating uh, just to read the, the extensive connections that all these commentators have found, but, but let me just tell you about a few of them. We're here introduced to, first of all, the seventh seal. Look what it says in verse 1. He opened the seventh seal. That's an amazing detailed number that God uses as a framework to help us understand his plan. God thinks heptatically. Now, he thinks a lot of ways because he, he is God. But one way that he thinks and he communicates to us is in sevens. That's what heptad means. Thinking in, we think in dozens, you know, and, and, and we understand that, you know, dozen this, dozen that. God thinks in heptads, in sevens. And so this is part of what he wants us to see to help us fit everything together that he's telling us. And first, it's amazing to see how God uses numbers to communicate communicate truths to us. Whenever you see one of these sets, he tells us there are sevens, he wants us to see and communicate truth to us through seeing the whole set and how each part fits to one another. And so when you see in verse 1 the seventh seal, immediately ought to make you think, oh, we're at the tail end of something a lot bigger than right here. And so that's part of God's communication means. Uh, this means there are six seals before that. Those seals started. You can turn back, look at chapter 6. Uh, as it says in verse 1, the lamb opened one of the seals. Chapter 6, verse 1. So there is seal number one. And we're talking about not, you know, the uh, 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 creature. We're talking about a document with wax seals on it. That is the, actually started out at the, in chapter 5 on the armrest of the throne of God Almighty. And this, this is like the title deed to the universe, and God extends it out and hands it to Jesus Christ. This is all what we covered in chapter 5. And Jesus begins breaking the seven seals one at a time, wax seals, breaking them. And as you break it, part of the document, uh, one little part of it will show. And when that shows, something happens. And that's what these seals are. Well, We've already studied each of those, but think of them as a literal set of events that happen in specific order, and they're a tool in God's plan that is yet future. I mean, none of this has happened that we're looking at. I mean, has there ever been a moment in the history of humanity where, where one-third of all the trees and grass on earth and one-third of everything alive in the seas die at once, just boom, 
like that. This has never happened. We've had lots of problems. We've never had such global catastrophe. Now, to help us understand, God's word uses literal, historical, grammatical communication. And, and for some reason, a lot of people kind of are afraid of the Bible because they think it's in code. In fact, that's why all those code books sell, you know, the Bible code, you know, where they use um, the idea of sequencing numbers. You know, you can make the Encyclopedia Britannica if you digitalize it and just look at every seventh letter. You can get all kinds of messages out of any document just because of the incidence and the statistical probability of things that we understand happening sequentially if you have enough letters. That's not how the Bible is. You don't have to read some code book. God uses literal, historical, grammatical communication. The Bible is very easy to understand when we look at it the same way we look at almost every other communication we face in life. When someone talks to us, if we pick up a letter and read it, if we get an assignment from somebody, if we go to a restaurant and look at a menu, if we're just reading a text that, that someone sends us on our digital device, we use this plain, normal sense of literal meaning of words. I mean, when I get a message, I don't immediately think it means something else. But yet, when people pick up the Bible, they go, it couldn't possibly mean what it said. Could it? Well, that's the, first, that's the normal way that God communicates. And if he's not, he makes it clear to us. Now, I'll just give you an example. Uh, if someone told you, and if you overheard them say, well, two days, three scratches, and five bumps, what do you think that means? Well, what, what we would think about is this. We would interpret the words as literal and frame them by the context of what they're talking about. And so if it was medical, if someone was saying that medically, they're looking for changes in the health of the person. They'd say, well, yeah, watch for two days and those three little scratches and those five little bumps. If they, something happens to them, it means that they're, they're contagious, but if they go away, you're okay. How about if you're at the car replay, repair place? Well, you have two days to fix the two scratches and the five little bumps on the car. Do you see how everything, as soon as you can get the context, we interpret things plainly, literally, grammatically. That's how we're supposed to look at the Bible. To understand God's word, just read the Bible as if God is trying to explain in plain English his plan. Because that's what God has done. See, he wants, this was written for us to know what he's doing, what he wants to do. Now, Think of these sevens. Look back at verse 1 at the end, or at the first line of it. Think of all the sevens uh, that God has given us. There is a reason for this repeated use of seven. It's because God is, is giving an encompassing message, speaking uh, to an entire topic. For example, seven churches. Now, were there more than seven churches in the first century? There were hundreds. There were thousands. But God used a set of seven to represent all types of, of believers, that's in chapter 2 and 3. Probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible, those two. And then the seven cities they're in. Does that mean there were only seven cities that after all of Christ and the apostles' work, only seven cities they had a church? No. They were a set to represent all. These seals are a set to represent God's judgment on the earth. And it's very intentional to show us something, and we'll see that this morning. So the seals, in one sense, represent all of God's plans to judge this sinful world and put an end to the rebellion. Now, the reason I say that is, I want you to notice something at, at, at this juncture. The seven seals telescopically cover chapter 6 to 19. You say, 
telescopically. Well, if you look closely, the seventh seal actually contains all the rest of the book inside. It's almost like, remember I told you uh, last time, that when you go to the fireworks display, the finale, it goes, and this firework goes up. But when you realize that you're near the finale, something in the dark is coming up. Out of that first blast, there was another one, and it goes, and it opens again. And then from that one comes another one, and usually, you know, deafens us all. That's exactly the telescopic nature of this seventh seal. And what you see is that the, the trumpets flow out of the seventh seal, and out of the seventh trumpet, the bowls of judgment flown out. And those are all telescopic. Now, let me just show you. Now, no laughing. Remember, I'm sleep-deprived, jet-lagged, and uh, ate far too much in too short of a time. It seems like in Argentina they're trying to get rid of all their cows because all they eat is beef. I mean, it's unbelievable. We, we landed, and, and, uh, and by the way, we, we landed, and there was so much security, I thought, they're, boy, they're really watching out for my son. You know? And I mean, there were just people everywhere, and guards, and earpieces, and guns, and... And I thought, this is really neat, word of life. You know, this is in the Buenos Aires. They were having the International Olympic Committee meeting while we were there at the hotel we were staying at. And so the emperor, or whatever his name is, of Japan was there, and the, the prime minister of Japan was there, and whatever his name, the head of Turkey was there, and Juan King, whatever, King of Spain was there. And we were the only ones in the whole hotel that were not with the Olympics. And I couldn't believe how, how much security. I mean, just to go get a cup of coffee, you were frisked twice, you went through a metal detector, they checked your badge, looked in your eye a couple times, and when I would reach for something in my pocket, you'd see several men go. <laughs> you know, I thought I was in, you know, John Wayne or something, a gunfight, but it was just the Olympics. But, so that's why this is a little, you know, I should have made trumpets for the trumpets and bowls for the bowls, but I was too tired. But look at, look at what, what we've already learned. The top row, those seven little, they look like billiard balls. Those end in, eight chapter, in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, now the seventh seal. But look what happens in the seventh seal. The trumpets, the, the verse 6 says, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepare to sound. And boom, 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 boom go those seven trumpets. Now turn over to chapter 11, verse 15. Look what happens there. It says, and then the seventh angel, the one we meet, uh, you know, the first of the seven, this is the final of the seven angels that we met back in chapter 8, verse 1. Look in eleven fifteen. the seventh angel sounded. So when that angel sounds... Look what happens when he sounds. The seventh trumpet starts these, these bowl judgments, which, by the way, take place. Look at the chapter 16. The loud voice from the temple, go and pour out the bowls of wrath. That's what they announced were going to happen in 11.15. And in 16.2, the first went and poured out his bowl. So do you see the telescopic nature? There's seal one, two, three, four, five, six. And then seven... The seventh seal takes us to the next level, and this next explosion comes out of the fireworks, and they are the trumpets and the seven angels that always stand before God uh, are the ones that, that he hands these trumpets to, and they start blowing these trumpets and all of this. And when the seventh one, the last in the set, blows his trumpet, boom, out comes the finale. And if you look at the finale of chapter 16, the bowls, by the time we get to the seventh bowl in verse 17, that is 
the, the announcement of the return of Christ. And, and that goes all the way through chapter 19. So that's what I mean. So in Revelation, as it says in the bottom of the little chart, and by the way, the first six seals are, are in the beginning half of the tribulation. And the seventh seal begins the, the really horrific second half. But in Revelation 6 to 8, we see the seven seals. Then come the seven trumpets that are out of them, and then the seven bowls that come out of them. So that is the, the doctrine that God has designed the Bible as a unified message that leads uh, sequentially to show his plan for the end. And we're going to be studying that. Next doctrine the doctrine of prayer. Look at the end of verse 1. Get back to Revelation chapter 8 with me and look at the second half. That was only the first phrase of verse 1. When he'd opened the seventh seal, here's the next part. There was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Now we talked about that last week. That's an overwhelming, deafening silence. And we'll see in a moment it's tied to a lot of things, but it continues. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. We met them in chapter 1. We met them again in chapter 4 and 5. These seven angels, now we don't know who they are except for two of them, Michael and Gabriel, but the Jewish um, you know, um, doctrine that they write in the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Gemara and all the other places, their oral tradition, their written tradition, where they take the Bible and explain it, they've named them all. And, but it doesn't matter what their names are, they're always there. These are the angels that are always facing God, and we see them as seven pillars of fire, and they're always facing God, and they're, they're sent off by him. They're ministering spirits that are the kind of, we call them archangels. Arche means high. They're the high angels. Now, there was one higher than all seven, and he was the anointed cherub, the covering cherub. And, and he had four faces and was covered with eyes, and... Uh, and he fell and became called Satan. But these seven did not. And they faced God at all times. And so there they are, the seven angels who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. Verse 3, and another angel having a golden censer. And a censer is a little dish. And a lot of times, because they had hot coals in it, it was hard to hold it because, you know, if it was gold or brass or whatever, you know, it's kind of like holding something out of the oven. They had three little chains on it that they would hold the chain and it would hold it would be suspended filled with this burning coals and so just think of you know like a, uh, if you've ever been in a liturgical service whenever we go to uh, the holy land they're always shaking these censers of incense if you've ever seen them do that that's kind of the object but it was a golden censer and came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense it doesn't say who gave it to him very likely the lord uh, himself, because this is right in front of his throne, but it doesn't matter, that he should offer it, and look at what verse 3 says, with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Now, this golden altar is mentioned not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but guess how many times? Seven. Remember, God communicates what? Heptatically as a set. So this altar is talked about, and it's very important. And look at verse 4. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. Now, what is this? I mean, what is that supposed to mean? What it says? It says a lot of things. God collects prayers. Amazing to think about. They're so important to him, we don't see that God collects anything else. 
He doesn't collect stamps and coins, and he could make them if he wanted to, but he accepts and receives the worship of his people, and, and especially the prayers are so important, he collects them. We already saw in chapter 5, verse 8, that they're in bowls in front of him. And, and it's interesting, bowls is plural, and it doesn't say how many. I wonder if we each have one bowl. I mean, there's lots of room in heaven. And I always think, how much is in your bowl? How much is in my bowl? How much do we even fill the bowl God keeps of our prayers in heaven? But it's amazing to think about. The smoke of the incense, the prayers of the saints ascends before God. This is the doctrine of prayer. God designed prayer as our ultimate connection to him. The Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, God the Son, are both involved in getting our prayers right to God the Father. And, and nothing, nothing can, can uh, you know, at all hinder that process except for us. By us not praying or by us intentionally, as the Psalms say, if I regard iniquity in my heart. You know what regard means? It's kind of looking in a catalog you, or walking through the mall, you kind of look through the window and you think, oh, look at those shoes, look at that outfit. Or you're online and you're shopping. and you're, You haven't bought it yet, but you're wanting it. That regard means if I want sin, as it says in Psalms, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God can't hear me pray. So God has made this vital connection that we can obfuscate and block and, and hinder. But prayer. Now, now think for just a moment about prayer. Prayers from saints get to heaven and get stored. That's the first line, if you just read that for what it says. They rise before God's face and are placed in special bowls, as I said, Revelation 5, 8 says that, and they're right in front of God. Now, usually when people get older, I used to love visiting my dad before he died at 92 in Lansing, and, and his life got, his world got smaller and smaller and smaller until finally it was just whatever was within reach of his recliner. And anything important to him was where he could reach it, either on the floor, behind, or on the little tables next to him. Because he was so weak, he couldn't get up and down and run after stuff. And he had his phone there, and he had his coffee cup there, and of course his Bible and the marking pens and everything he read and his little remote. And everything important to him. And the rest of the house just fell into disuse. And it was right there. Do you ever think when you're in the hospital, whatever you can reach by your your bedside. When you're handicapped in any way, you, you keep everything close with you. What, what is the message here? Anything important. The rest can, you know, forget about it. Whatever is most important, I keep really close. What does God keep really close? See, that's what we need to think about here, how important prayer is. Prayer gives us access, front row seats in front of God. Nothing can get us closer. Nothing brings us nearer. Nothing is more front and center to all that God is doing than our prayers. And yet the most confessed malady of most believers is I don't pray enough. Why? Why? I don't think we realize what we have. And so we don't utilize it and use it. By the way, some of those prayers that are in front of God are the answered prayers, the yeses and nos. You know, God does answer every prayer, either yes or no. And some are the unanswered prayers, the not yets, please wait. That's another, a third form. There's yes, no, and please wait. But God does answer all those prayers. But they are all the prayers of the saints, the yeses, the nos, and the please waits. As Hebrews 4 says, they come before the throne of grace and mercy because God wants to give us grace to help us in time of need when he says yes, when he says no, and when he says wait. 
He always gives us grace and, and his mercy to help us. And all prayers are fragrant offerings of worship. Now, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the worship at church was good. What went on this morning is not worship. That was music. That is not worship. That, don't say I, I worshiped unless you did. That was music. Music is kind of like the coals that inflame the heart, and worship only arises from a redeemed heart to God. It's very personal. Now, we can corporately be worshiping, but worship is very personal, offering to God. And you, someone else can offer, and you don't really have, it doesn't help your account if someone else is with a heart a fire for God is lifting worship. If you're just observing and, you know, crit critiquing or whatever, it has to be that I'm engaged in sending things through that pipeline, which comes through prayer. Prayer uh, has the capacity to take our worship before God. But the silence of heaven, look back at the text. The second half of verse 1 says, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. The, the silence may well be a precious insight into how vital prayers are to God. Everything halts before his throne at this moment as he, now we don't know how many times this happens, but we, are, we do know that at this moment this happened. And when God reaches into and gets out prayers from the collected reservoir of the prayers of all the saints, and when he combines those with the incense and gives them with coals of fire from the altar, when all that happens, nothing else happens. Everyone just freezes. It, it's a, it, did your parents ever tell you that, you know, when someone that you respected and admired talked, you were supposed to stop? You don't talk. I mean, if, if your teacher steps in the room and starts talking, in the old world, when people were respectful, everyone would stop talking because they respected them. They were greater than them. But now everybody thinks they're great, so nobody stops talking. I mean, you can just have the most august person in the world, and nobody, everybody's individually so important that we, we have to keep going louder and louder, and finally, you know, they do something, make noise. But, but when God the greatest is doing something, everybody freezes because... He is the center of everything. And so he's saying prayer is important. The silence in heaven may well be a precious insight into how vital our prayers are to God. Everything halts before his throne as the prayers of his saints arise before Almighty God. And if everything else halts, and if God breathes in the sweet fragrance of the devoted prayers that we offer, doesn't that make us want to pray and to pray and to pray. And we should do so without ceasing. Remember Paul saying that in 1 Thessalonians 5? Pray without ceasing. See, Paul was encouraging us. This is so vital. He says, don't miss it. It's so important. It's kind of like uh, treasure. I mean, if someone tips you off about treasure, yesterday morning we were on this plane out of Miami, and I've never had this happen before. Bonnie was busily witnessing to the person by the window. She was in the middle seat. I was over here, you know, trying to read my 96 pages again and, and everything. And, and, and finally, the lady by the window, you know, said, I have to go to the... Now, we were starting to land, and she's 85. I have to go to the restroom. Of course, we shot out of our seats to, you know, we wanted to help her get to the restroom. And uh, so I got out, and then Bonnie got out, and then this lady got out, and she's quite elderly and, and struggling, and she's trying to get out of that row, and she's trying to take her purse, thought we were convicts probably, and didn't want to leave anything behind. And as she's going... 
uh, I make sure she gets down the aisle, and Bonnie follows her to make sure she didn't fall. And I look down, and right in front of her seat was a little pile of $20 bills. And then right in front of Bonnie's seat were more. And then there. And then I looked quickly down the aisle, and as she was walking, her purse was dropping like she was seeding the ground. Twenties were falling out all the way down the aisle. The whole airplane, everybody was starting to get agitated. People were looking in the aisle. They were thinking, should I take these? What am I going to, you know, it was just like it was an electric moment. And so I, I scooped them up and started picking them up, and I went all the way down the aisle picking up money. I mean, every eye on the plane, they were trying to see, you know, they were all thinking, what's he going to do with that money? And by the time, you know, I had a handful this big, and by the time she was waiting in line at the bathroom, I said, ma'am, excuse me, ma'am. And she turned around, and I said, here. Oh, the look on her face, she thought she'd won the lottery. <laughs> she just, and, and I pointed down, and she had her purse upside down, and, and then she connected it, and she turned, and boy, did she accept the track from Bonnie. When she got done witnessing to her, when she came back from the bathroom, she says, you guys, who are you, you know? And, but did you notice the that I was attracted to that trail of treasure? Did you know that that's what prayer is like? The more you understand, you'll take every, it's almost like grabbing 20s, every moment that you can spend in prayer. I mean, when people see money, they run for it because it communicates a value. Does prayer communicate a value that you want to grab? You have a little free time. Do you listen to a tune or talk to God? You have a little free time. Do you text a buddy or post something or poke or Instagram something or do you spend? Whatever you treasure is what's closest. And God treasures prayer and says we should too. Well, the altar, and and go back to to what it says in verse 2, the seven angels who stand before God were given trumpets. Then another angel, verse 3, having a golden censer, came and stood before the altar. Remember I told you this altar is mentioned seven times. And it's just... A little copy, and I told you that last week, and we looked at it in Exodus 30, of the, of the altar of incense that stood right in front of the big veil that divided the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the tabernacle. And there was this huge curtain, and right in front of the curtain was this little altar about three feet high with a little rail around it that could keep the coals from falling off. And you would go out front to the brazen altar, bring a big bucket of coals, a censer, and you would put the coals there, and then you would take the incense and sprinkle it all over that altar. And in front of the curtain, where the Holy of Holies was that represented God's throne, this smoke was always rising, which portrayed our prayers rising before the face of God. And that's what we see here. The altar of incense shows up seven times in Revelation. And the reason it shows up is to tell us something. Prayer connects us to the throne of God. And it's better than $20 bills, and we should jump out of life and follow the trail. If we really believe that prayer connects us right there. I mean, you want to get God's attention? Pray. He stops everything, goes, oh, yes, no, wait. See, he always answers. And of course, this shows us some of the ones waiting. Well, let's go to the third doctrine. Look at verse 5. The doctrine of sovereignty. God connects our prayers to his plan. Look what happens. The angel took the censer. Filled it with fire from the altar. By the way, the altar of incense was ignited by coals that came from the burnt offering, the big brazen one, way outside the tent. And that represented Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So what this says is that prayers are ignited through the death of Christ in our place. In other words, that 
he's talking about the prayers of saints, people that have been saved, redeemed. That coal that ignited the prayer, the incense, came from that brazen altar. And so that's what the connection is here. From the altar, threw it to the earth. Now what is that? That's God answering prayers. You see, God makes a connection here. God connects our prayers to his plan. God wanted to judge the earth for their sin, but he wanted to do it in concert with the prayers of the saints. And, and think about God responding. The picture of the prayers, mixing them with the coals, speaks of God and his perfect timing and his plan, answering. One prayer that has perhaps been most often prayed for is from the Lord's, or more accurately, from the disciples' prayer. And when saints over the past 2,000 years have cried out to God the Father saying, Thy kingdom come, that's what they've been praying for. Did you notice what it said in chapter 11? Look, look for just a second at what it says in chapter 11 and verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, 11.15, says, saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our, this, of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is a direct answer to all of our longing prayers when we said, thy kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Rescue us. Stop the evil, the injustices, the wickedness, the, the people that get away with everything all the time, all around the world. Stop it. He says, I heard that, and I will. I'm putting that right there, right in front of me. Won't lose it. I never go to sleep. Keep my eye on it. And at the exact moment, back, look on the screen, threw it to the earth. That's God answering prayers. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And so what, what he's saying is, everything that's happening from here on out is my plan, and I'm orchestrating in concert with the prayers that I prompted from my saints. You know, after I got done speaking Friday, it was really sweet. All these students... Uh, gathered around and, and, uh, with their professor, and they said, okay, we have a question for you. And I said, wonderful, what is it? And, uh, oh, and their little Bibles were out, and they're all underlined and everything, and it was so precious because they were, they were being trained that what they were doing was an offering for the Lord, and they just wanted to find verses because, you know, it's very Spartan to be a missionary to poor people in South America. And it was precious to see them seeing how God connects their prayers that aren't even answered in their lifetime, some of them, and fulfills his plan. But let's go to the next verse, uh, the doctrine, and that starts in verse 7. The first angel sounded, and we've got to get through these angels, and I'll just rip through them. It's the doctrine of God is the only giver and sustainer of life. The first angel sounds, and hail and fire followed mingled with blood. Now, doesn't that sound like something in Exodus chapter 7 through 10? Remember the plagues on Egypt? Very similar what's happening. God was judging the Egyptians because they had their false gods, and he was saying, those gods aren't real. And I'm going to show you who's real. God's doing the same thing here. He sends down this hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and look what happens. Now, you know, everything is go green, have you noticed that? Go green. Don't print your email. Go green. You know, use the blower for your hands. Don't use that paper. Go green, and it's good. We shouldn't waste. It's wrong to waste. God is a God of, not of wastefulness. Humans are wasteful. But the go green is almost a reflection of the mother earth goddess, you know, save the planet. No, save the people. 
The planet's hopelessly headed for destruction. Save the people. Save the planet is what the world says. And there's almost a worship of nature. Well, a third of the trees are burned up and all green grass was burned up. Green speaks of life. Grass and trees are signs of life. They provide food, shelter, shade, nutrition, comfort. God says to the world, if you don't worship me, if you worship the earth, then your food, your life, your comfort, and your security that you think is the earth, I'm going to show you, really, I'm the one who is the giver and sustainer of life, not the earth. The earth doesn't give life and it can't sustain it if I don't hold it together. So God lets loose. Now, what is happening here? A gazillion things could cause this. You know what one of them is? All those earthquakes, all the rupture, crustal paroxysms that has been going on, we already saw in chapter 6. Can you imagine the, the size? They just found a volcano out in the ocean that is larger than the British Isles. And it's just sitting there. I mean, it was in the news this weekend. And, and they said that with all the imaging they're doing from satellites, they said, Whoa, we didn't. this is the largest volcano on Earth. If one of those... Break, with all these earthquakes, breaks loose, and I doubt if just one of them will. That superheated water vapor going up into the atmosphere, getting up there where it's minus, what was it on the airline I was watching? We were at 37,000 feet and it was minus 56, or I don't know how cold it was, but boy, you get super hot water steam up there and minus 56, and it immediately freezes and comes back down. Now, maybe God mixes some blood with it. I don't know. He's in charge. But the net effect is a third of all the trees are burned up and all green grass was burned up. Wow. That's coming. That's literal. That doesn't mean something else. God already did this in Egypt. And he didn't do something else. He did what it says. He burned up and killed their animals, their crops, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, God is speaking. What a warning. What a wake up. And the multitudes of martyrs out of the tribulation that we see in chapter 6 and 7 are saved out of this mess. See you know what that means? People are listening. God is saving people in the tribulation. They're seeing, they've already gone through the earthquake of chapter 6 and the meteorites and everything else. And now a third of every green thing is burned up. What will the animals eat? What, what about all the birds in the trees? What about all the turkeys that are in our yard that live in the trees at night? A third of them are going to be gone too, I, I suspect. You understand? God says, I'm the only giver and sustainer of life. And some people listen. Well, it's time to go, but what, what's the takeaway from something like this? God wants you and me to pray. And he wants to hear and consider and fit into his plan, those prayers, and he wants to answer them. But part of what we need to know is that God is the only giver of life. And he's the only one that can sustain anything. Don't save the planet. I mean, that's maybe about tenth down on your list of priorities. Pray and be like God, interested in seeing people get saved. Well, when we pick up next time, it gets even better. Let's bow for a word of prayer and then we'll go. Father in heaven, I thank you this morning for the clarity of your word. You speak literally. You speak clearly. You speak in, in ways that we can understand if we want to. And you've told us this morning, prayer is important. And it always is in front of your face. And I pray, if nothing else, that you would stir some hearts this morning 
to become men and women and young men and women who before they grab that digital device will take their spiritual device, their heart, and just pause and lift the eyes of their heart to you, our Father in heaven. In fact, let's all quietly stand and we're going to close by reciting those words. And may, uh, as we pray what we know is the Lord's Prayer, may you just make a little deposit as you pray this from your heart into your bowl that's in front of the throne of God. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go.